0: Welcome to Inspire Others and in the Guide to Awesomeness podcast, powered by Coldwell Banker Ronan Realty. Join us as we explore how to unleash your inner awesomeness with some of the most inspiring people in all industries. All right, well, welcome back, everyone, to the Guide to Awesomeness. I'm super pumped today. I had the pleasure of listening to Drew speak in Vancouver just a couple weeks ago at the GenBlue Canada conference, and I'm excited to introduce him today on the podcast. So Drew Dudley, called one of the most dynamic speakers in the world, Drew Dudley is on a mission to help people unlearn some dangerous lessons about leadership. As the founder and chief catalyst of Day One Leadership, he's helped top organizations around the world increase their leadership capacity. His clients have included McDonald's, American Express, JP. Morgan Chase, The United Way and more than 100 colleges and universities. Prior to this, Drew spent eight years as the lead of one of Canada's largest leadership development programs at the University of Toronto. Drew is also the best-selling author of "This Is Day One: A Practical Guide to Leadership That Matters." It debuted at number six on the Wall Street Journal bestsellers list as a speaker. Drew has delivered keynotes to more than 250,000 people across five continents. His TED Talk, Everyday Leadership. And we're going to jump in, Drew, with the first question. Extensive background in leadership and how did you develop your expertise in leadership and what motivated you to focus on this area?
1: What's interesting is I always have hesitated to use anything related to the word expert. I like expertise, I suppose, but you know what I did is I developed a lot of experience in leadership and I've done my absolute best to encapsulate the best lessons and share them with other people. But I'll be completely honest with you. It was an accident. Everything was an accident. All of the leadership roles that I did when I was younger was not for leadership in and of itself. It was simply because it looked good on paper. And I've noticed a lot of young people fall into that trap as well, because we put so much focus on grades and getting into the right schools that Often we focus so much on what we have to do to be successful that we give very little thought to who we want to be along the way, and we start to regret that later on. I got involved in leadership by accident. I was trying to impress a girl, which is how so many stories start, right? I wanted a job so I could stay at a university campus over the summer because I had a crush on someone, and so I took on a job I didn't really want that involved a leadership role in fundraising. And I had never seen myself as a fundraiser. I just saw myself as smitten. (laughs) What happened was we were so successful at raising money that I became completely addicted to engaging with the world instead of writing papers about it. And as a result, I got heavily involved in this fundraising campaign, eventually becoming the national chair of the entire thing.
0: That's awesome.
1: Yeah. My job was to help train, gosh, I guess about 100 people every year to then train 30,000 people to raise a million dollars in 30 days. And so I was thrown into that role. And I thought that I wanted to be a professional fundraiser. It turns out what I loved was bringing people together to accomplish things. And I didn't realize that I had slipped into teaching leadership until I was approached by the dean at the University of Toronto to say, we would like you to build our leadership program because you come from a very practical perspective on it. I wasn't really thinking of myself as a leadership educator. I was running a charity. And to run a charity, I had to teach people how to do all kinds of different leadership skills. Somewhere along the way, through years and years of consistently trying to, trying to engage these young people and have them develop the skills necessary to really thrive in this charity, somewhere along the way, I caught somebody's eye and they said, yeah, that's, that's leadership expertise. because thing is, I never thought of it that way. So I'll be honest with you, I stumbled into all of this. But once I started to see how people reacted to being told that this thing they were taught about was for people who were rich and famous and powerful was actually something acceptable to them. Once you see how it impacts people, it's really hard to stop. So I just kind of fell into it. What I find is when you know you found something you're passionate about is when you do it, you suck at it, and then you immediately want to do it again. And we've all seen people who did that with surfing, with skiing, my buddy was a DJ you know, I mashed two records together the first time. So did he, but he then spent seven more hours learning how to do it properly. And I immediately went, okay, that was fun, but I sucked. And that's kind of how it happened with leadership development.
0: Yeah. It just struck you, struck your soul, I guess is what you're saying too, right? When you do something and then being able to repeat it naturally. Yeah. What is your first job that you can remember and how old were you?
1: Oh my gosh, the first job I can remember, I was doing inventory in grocery stores at like four o'clock in the morning. (laughs) Uh, I think that's the first one I could really remember. I mean, there might've been a paper route somewhere along there, but that's the first one I remember. And then my first sort of grown-up job, I worked at a television station, which led me to creating videos and paying my way through college, partly by editing together people's birthday videos, et cetera. But what I think that taught me was how to create a narrative. Because when Uh you create a video of someone's life, or in some cases, memorials, you have to think about how what you're creating is going to impact people emotionally when you can't see those people. And I think that's really served me well in the years since when you're putting together a speech. So you're putting together a movie, a video, and you're like, okay, at this moment, I want them to feel this. Well, it's the exact same thing when you're putting together a presentation. I want them to feel confused. I want them to feel empowered. I want them to feel uh, like they failed here, but have hope. All of that stuff you plan out ahead of time.
0: Telling the story. Well, that's cool. I'm always curious. I, I always loved to, to work from a young age. I've done a lot of different things and sold a lot of different things. And back in the days, selling oil changes over the phone, right? And pizza.
1: I totally would have bought oil changes over the phone because that's one of those things that you never do. But yeah, Oh, you wouldn't have to sell pizza to me. You know what? I think it's a great idea to actually do an outbound calling for pizza at seven o'clock at night. Hi, this is Pizza Hut calling. Did you want anything? Right. I think we just made a billion dollars.
0: I was on the receiving end. I'm back in the day and we we're just in this little commercial space. So all sorts of fun jobs. It's interesting to me always that I find a lot of people in leadership and involved in leadership have always naturally been keen to, to work and, and do different jobs. Can you share with us the concept of day one leadership and how it helps organizations increase their leadership capacity?
1: Yeah. A big part of my work is I don't just want to talk and wax poetic on how we should rethink leadership and how we should perhaps do it differently. For me, it's all about how can you teach people how to do it? So, I mean, we can wax poetic on the why all day long, which I do a little bit always, but then you really have to deliver a how-to. And so the day one leadership philosophy is a mix between what I was teaching at the university, the look into leadership theory, and a lot of personal experience. And a big part of what I draw on are the what I call day ones in my life. So the beginning of extremely difficult tasks that I then used a particular process to get through. And that could include going from 350 pounds to 200 pounds. That could include being open about the fact that I have bipolar in a world that, although it's improving, still equates mental illness with mental weakness. Uh, Recently, I was diagnosed with a pretty severe case of ADHD as well that was confused with the bipolar for a long time. And the biggest one for me when it comes to the day one approach is my battle with alcohol. And the idea within recovery from addiction is that if you don't want to have a drink for the rest of your life, you have to choose not to have a drink today. And then you have to act like every day of the rest of your life is your first day of recovery. Because what it does is it keeps you from being complacent about what you've already accomplished. Who cares if I've done this 2,191 days in a row if I don't make that same decision today? But it also means you don't get overwhelmed by how much there's still to do. I have an addiction. I have to fight it every day. I sound flippant about it and I shouldn't be, but it becomes a part of your reality. And my one priority every day between getting up in the morning and going to bed is don't have a drink. Like That's a choice I have to make. If I've done it a bunch of days in a row, I can't rely on that. And I can't get intimidated by the fact that I hope there are thousands more days in my life and I'm going to have to have this fight thousands of times. That's enough to make you quit. And so you can't think ahead and you can't think behind. All you have to focus on is today, there is a non negotiable decision I'm going to make. And I expanded that from alcohol to weight loss. Eventually, I've started talking about it in terms of leadership behaviors. Like day one of any difficult task has humility, commitment, and forgiveness. Like on your day one of anything, there's a humility, commitment, and forgiveness that isn't anywhere else on any other day. And so day one for your leadership is when you say, these are the non-negotiable leadership behaviors that will be a part of every day of my life. And I have six and I try to get three every single day. And that to me means that I'm living day one. So instead of saying, hey, I, I, I lived my values yesterday or I'll do it tomorrow, it's how did I do it today? And I'm going to stay committed to it. So it's a mixture of leadership theory from, look, I don't want to bore anybody listening, but the social change model to servant leadership. There's mixtures of everything in there. But what it really boils down to is the idea that leadership's not in the big stuff. It's in the consistent stuff. And if you do ordinary acts with extraordinary consistency, that changes things. It changes businesses. It changes worlds. It changes lives. It changes relationships the challenge is in one of the most distracting worlds ever, how do you stay focused on doing that when there's always going to be something pulling you aside? So day one leadership is not only approach of how to make non-negotiable commitments every day, but we're based in some behavioral psychology that basically tricks your brain into being your best self. And it's really rooted in this idea that, if you make ordinary decisions every day with extraordinary consistency, huge things will happen over time. And that's the day one approach. I just took what had changed my life in any number of categories and started to apply it to how we're going to approach leadership. It's the 12 steps of leadership, for lack of a better term.
0: Right. It's 12 steps of anything. Yeah. I love that approach because I am also not diagnosed with anything, but I, I like change. I don't like routine. And so that can be problematic in all aspects of your life, right? Because it's so important.
1: Fun to build, terrible to maintain. You know what I mean? Like, oh, this project's awesome. And now it exists. And I have zero interest in it at this point.
0: On to the next. Or or having like my computer screen freaks most people out, right? I have like 35 tabs. My desktop is like everything is on my desktop. And I don't know. I just like it that way, to be honest. Um, But so consistency is something that I have to work at every single day and you really have to pick and I love that what you're saying about making sure you have six and you do three I think that's important for some people because I think people set their expectations too high on a lot of things in life and then they set themselves up for failure so that's great advice and I'm going to actually start to use that and write more down but only have the goal of three (laughs) it's a good way to trick yourself So I wanted to dig in a little bit more to the fundraising role. It really interests me that you were able to train uh, so many people on a consistent basis. And I wonder if at that point in time, you even had a conscious process or was it just something that evolved? Because it does take a lot to train that many people a year. So I'm very curious, um, especially since you were young, uh, what did that look like?
1: There were two things that I really pulled out of that experience. The first is that uh, when you're dumb, surround yourself with smart people. And when you're smart, surround yourself with smart people who disagree with you. Mm. And that's one of the big things I pulled from that. And I gotta give credit to the great Aaron Sorkin for that, uh, that observation. The second thing is that the day one process didn't exist back then. What existed back then was a belief that if you put the right people together, that you would find a way to convey the culture you were looking for. And the power of culture is one of the things I really pulled away from there, which means when you're bringing in 100 new people every year, the 12 people who are already there, who are the institutional memory, myself and my senior leadership team, they, in the first day, establish what the culture is in terms of how people treat one another, what kind of energy we're going to bring to things. And I did not realize that entire teams were built in the first 24 hours in terms of what the culture was of how people treat each other, what kind of energy they bring, and what is expected of them. What I also learned in that experience is something that has served me so well in the leadership development and not just in the day one process, but in teaching it, is that I learned through that that the story is the basic unit of human understanding. And that when I tried to teach effective event planning, Because in many ways, at that point, I was talking very practical things. How do you plan events effectively? How do you keep people safe? How do you acquire sponsorships? But what I discovered is that if you want to teach that stuff, you can't just go to a board and say, here's how you do it. There has to be stories. There has to be things that engage the audience. And so by trying to teach incredibly practical things in a very narrative way, I learned the power of story and the way that people connect to stories. And that has been how I taught everything ever since. When I teach people the leadership process, the, the, we call it the day one process or the tool, the leadership test is something we created. I'm always talking about the story of how it was created. It's not just here's what it is. It's here's the people who created it. Here's how we failed. Here's how we corrected that failure. And here's how that correction led us to something totally different. But when I was fundraising, I didn't have the day one process. I had great people around me. And I had a team that created a culture instantly that said, everyone here is welcome and that we're going to learn and we're going to have a good time doing it, but that this is serious. To be able to create a culture that says this is serious and we're going to have a seriously good time doing it is very hard to do. And you need everybody pulling on the same oar. And that's what I learned from there. The power of story, how fast culture is created by the people that are there when new people come in, because human beings when they get into a new social situation, immediately start looking for social cues. I did not realize how much people, especially when you're younger, want to impress people when they meet them. And what we realized was that you can't try to impress people when you meet them. You simply have to uh, attack the common goal with a certain approach and they'll see it. And they'll be impressed if you do it in a way that is effective. You do it in a way that is filled with integrity and purpose and you don't have to say hey look how cool i am and you don't have to do a icebreaker you just have to show how much the job matters to you and how much it's brought to you and that teaches people culture is created in the first day by the people who've already lived it that the story is the most powerful way to go and also that people will learn leadership when it's practical and that too much of leadership for most people is theoretical. It's something they'll do in the future. But if we break it down into how you actually are doing it in your everyday life, more people start to realize this is something that surrounds me every day. Sure is. All that came from Shinerama. What what an extraordinary experience it was. I mean, four of my friends are married to people they met at that conference.
0: Yeah, I bet it sounds phenomenal and it really struck me and to do it, like I said, repetitively, And probably what looked like effortlessly because you created that culture and, and had that and told those stories and, and it's sociology uh, essentially. And I think we, we forget so much of that in this tech world too, how much is just people helping people. We work on that a lot here all of the time. Um, We still really believe in people helping people and you have to have those people creating that culture.
1: So People bring an energy that surrounds them. Good, bad, ugly. But what the pandemic did for most of us is it, it made the only energy that surrounded us, it, it was always the same energy. And anything, no matter how good, if you're con- constantly surrounded by it, it gets stale. And so I think we all got a little bit stale of our own energy and because it started to get negative. But I got to give credit. You said, you know, I created a culture. I got to give full credit. I didn't create that culture. I perpetuated it because I learned it the first day I was there from the men and women who taught me. And so the idea that you can create this idea that we have to create a culture, what we need to do is constantly refine our cultures. So you reinforce the culture that works and you refine the parts that don't. But every time someone comes in and says, we want to create a new culture, I want to bang my head off a table because you can't create culture. Culture is a byproduct of interactions between people. And so we all ha- we all went into our own little room cultures there for a, a few years. And I think we're learning now again, not just how to interact with one another, but how to make each other better again. Because I, I hate to say it, but for like three years, all we did was make each other worse.
0: I agree 100 uh, percent. And it is energy. And we feed off of each other. And like you said, social interactions. And I love, you know, talking about social cues. It's so important um, and important to remember that it's okay to have those as well. Like it's okay to interact and maybe not agree. Like you said, I I love that you said having people, uh, smarter people who don't agree with you around you all the time. And that's brilliant too.
1: What is the old cliche? If you're the smartest person in the room, you pick a new room. But I I think that's a key piece that we're talking about. No matter how much AI becomes important, no matter how much technology allows us to do things like we're doing right now or Zoom calls, No matter what that is, they will never replace 10,000 years of evolution that says to our brain that we need people like that is an embedded DNA thing, because if we didn't need people, we would all have died when we were young back like 5000 years ago without people, nobody survives. And guess what? Our social world has changed a lot faster than our physiological brain has. We are still hardwired to live in a world that no longer exists. It's why most of the threats in the Western world are no longer physical. They're social and emotional. That is a tough one. The world we live in has demanded a regulation of our emotions that we are not genetically developed for. We're not supposed to be able to control our emotions at the level that this world demands. And I think that when we remember that, it doesn't make anything less annoying from other people, but I think we can be a little bit more empathetic and compassionate. When we realize that none of us are designed to live in the world we're stuck in. So, of course, we're going to mess it up along the way. And that's annoying. But if we recognize it's not personal, I think that makes things better.
0: And it's part of life. It's being part of life for, like you said, thousands and thousands of years. It's hardwired in. It's DNA. And emotions are okay. You're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days. Sometimes, hopefully, you're having a good day when the person around you is having a bad day. And that's the whole point community.
1: It's funny how that happens, eh? Like if you're if you work with someone closely and you both may have like a temper or or you get upset, but there's almost like this seesaw thing that happens that when you see your partner or your colleague start to get riled up, even if it bugs you too, you drop it down a little bit. That's just an example of how we as humans socially regulate each other. And Now it used to be that you only tried to socially regulate the people who were like close to you. So, you know, by that, I don't mean you control them, but I mean, you adapt your behavior to try to get, you know, the sort of interaction you hope for.
0: Help their frequency with your frequency.
1: Oh, I like that. Yeah. Change their frequency with yours or help their frequency with yours. Your vibe. With technology, we lose a little bit of our ability to do that. And it's why when people said, what was the biggest difference in your job over the pandemic with virtual presentations as opposed to real ones, it's that you cannot feed off the audience. You can't see them. You can't feel, you can't see that little eye shift. And I think that's important, not just when I give speeches, but when you talk to other human beings. And it's why I think most people have stuck with Zoom, even though we easily could have gone back to phones. Like once the pandemic was over, we don't need to do Zoom calls anymore for every meeting. But you notice that we do? That's how much we crave interaction, even if it can't be the full kind.
0: Absolutely. Yes. And I know on Zoom, uh, the one thing for me is that nobody ever talks back when you're presenting, right? Like, and people can't laugh together because it just gets weird on Zoom. And so, yeah, you lose you lose the whole personality of of the room. So you just kind of sit there and you present and you feel a little bit nervous the whole time because you're not getting that feedback um, or feed forward or anything.
1: A group that doesn't laugh together isn't a group. You know what I mean? Like, even if they're, they hardly know one another, but you go into a boardroom, uh, you know, I tell three jokes that I'm pretty sure are decent because they've gotten laughter before and you get nothing, you're, you know right away that people who can't share humor can't share ideas.
0: Absolutely. And so you must have had fun. I, I know you told some really fun stories in Vancouver, too. So being in a leadership position with university students, now I know university students can be all ages and that makes it even even more fun. But really so learning how to take that and develop the program did you kind of sit down and like start developing this program and how long did it take you to develop it and I know what you're going to say it's always evolving I'm sure but the basic kind of outline and getting it on paper. What does that process look like?
1: You know, it happened relatively quickly, all things considered, especially for the University of Toronto, which is a behemoth, slow moving and very resistant to change. I don't even want to call it an organization, let's say institution. Right. It doesn't like new things. And I was coming in and wanting to create a leadership program that didn't focus on theory it had theoretical underpinnings, of course, but I wanted to actually teach kids how to do something. I wanted them, and kids is a strong word. I, I use it now. I didn't at the time, but students. And one of the biggest things I learned from my experience teaching at the university was that the education system is the primary source of many of the ills that we are having to deal with in our society. And I could go on about that for ages, but I think one of the biggest things, just to summarize what it does, And before I do, I will say this. The education system is the most liberating, the most important, the most, I guess, essential system that we have in our society. It's also among the most restrictive and dangerous because things that are embedded to young people never get unlearned. And much of what I was doing at the university was trying to undo the knots that were tied earlier on. People are addicted to their grades because the first time you're ever given a grade, well, you start to realize, well, why are they grading us if it isn't to rank us? And why are they ranking us if it isn't to give the people something at the top that the people at the bottom don't get? And so I learned how much we had educated young people out of leadership by the time they were in their late teens and early 20s. We had taught them from a young age that it was about money and power and influence, and that if they outperformed all the people around them, one day they would have a better chance at that money, power, and influence. However, Access to that was by having a certain set of skills, writing tests well, remembering things particularly well, memorizing things. A lot of people don't write essays well. A lot of, Even more people don't take tests particularly well. So I've got a whole bunch of brilliant people in an education system that measures only one type of intelligence, and it has made a whole bunch of people believe a couple of things. They're dumber than they are, and they're not a leader and don't deserve to be. Because either they're not smart enough or they have natural inherent traits that they've been taught do not lend themselves to leadership, particularly if they're an introvert, particularly if they don't like being the center of attention or they don't speak particularly well. What I learned at U of T and how long it took me, once I realized in one of my first sessions that everything I was saying was theoretical to the audience, that one day they might be able to use it, I realized I was looking at an audience who had no power. They are young, they go to a school where professors who have egos the size of Montana tell them exactly what they should do, how many words they can do it in. They still live at home, they work part-time jobs where they're certainly not a senior manager. And as a result, young people don't have any power. They're as part of a world that has been systematically destroyed environmentally by people that are now telling them that they need to eat less avocado toast. So what I came <laughs> to understand Is every type of leadership that was being taught did not resonate with these people because it was all something that maybe one day they could get. And a lot of them had already decided that they either couldn't or didn't want it. So what we did was we pivoted to a type of leadership program that said to people, here's how you change specific behaviors every day. And here are the skills you can use to develop those behaviors. We tried to make it as practical as possible. The end goal of the leadership program at U of T was to tell people who had convinced themselves that they weren't leaders and they didn't have power that both of those things were completely wrong. And once I realized that I was teaching people things that they would use one day instead of things that they could use tomorrow, I said, we have to reframe how we're doing this leadership program. And we have to make it about different perspectives. And we have to teach people specific processes that they can use. You know what I mean? Like a lot of students wouldn't join the program except to look good on a resume. And that's fine with me. I don't care why you join the program. I just want to make sure you leave with something better than that looks good on a resume. But what I really learned is that We teach lessons early on, untaught lessons that stand in the way of leadership and stand in the way of happiness. And the first example you give to someone of something, it shapes how they think about it for the rest of their lives, and it limits how they think about it for the rest of their lives. So when we give presidents and scientific groundbreakers and people who conquer empires all of the attention when we give examples of leadership, I don't think we realize that we're actually destroying future leadership by the first examples that we give. So we should be pointing young people towards who are the individuals in your life who change the way you feel about things and who make things happen for you. Those individuals are leaders and those are the ones to emulate. And I look at it this way. Can I ask you a question, Sarah? Yes. I don't say this to make you look dumb. It's just I know what happens. Everybody does it because it happened to me. Can you name the last five best picture winners for the Oscars? Can you name the last five Pulitzer Prize winners for literature? The last five winners of the Nobel Peace Prize?
0: Nope.
1: Why the heck are they our leadership examples? But can you tell me a teacher who changed the way you thought about the world?
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Can you tell me somebody who the last time that you thought you couldn't get back up was there to help you back up? Yes, I can. We know those names. We don't know the names of the Nobel Prize winners. And yet, when we talk about leadership, We talk about Nobel Prize and Pulitzer Prize winners because they're at the top of their profession. And yet we don't know their names. I wanted young people to realize that they're those people, that you can be that person at 18 years of age, the one that picks somebody up when they didn't think they could get back up, the one who points out people's leadership when they don't see it in themselves. You get to do that. You get to do it at 18. We taught you when you were a kid that you weren't as smart as you are. I think we owe it to you to change your mind before we send you out into the world.
0: Well, thank you for doing that. And I wish that there was a program in every university that was teaching kids to unlearn uh, all of the things that were taught. And my mom, who was a huge teacher in my life, was a lifelong student too until she got her law degree. I was like 12, so she would have been 30-something when she got her law degree. So I was with her through university. So she went to University of Waterloo, University of Guelph at university of windsor and that's where she got her law degree was university in windsor and she taught me though because one of her many degrees was um in early childhood development and that you know so much is created in zero to five in humans right and so then you're talking by the time they get to you uh you're undoing a lot in order to teach the majority of people who it isn't who weren't in the right environment And who didn't have the right teachers and who didn't have the personality? Because as we know, and again, we could go on all day about personalities, but some lead themselves to leadership uh, more naturally. So it's it's interesting.
1: If you're listening to this right now and you have kids, there's something I do that completely messed with my head when one of my most brilliant students said it to me because I asked him, why do you matter? Like if you have kids, ask them this question: Why do you matter? And if you think that we haven't disempowered young people, watch how they answer that question. Because I, one of the most extraordinary students I have ever had the privilege of working with, I asked him why he mattered, and he hit a long pause, and then he said, "Well, I don't yet. That's why I'm working so hard here." And that is a terrible thing to hear from someone that you care about. But ask your kids. Because if they're under the age of five, they give you answers that melt your ass. Once they turn five, we send them to school and they often stop believing that why they matter is up to them. It's evaluated externally for the next 20 years of their lives. And because most of us spend 20 years in that system, a lot of us never unlearn the lesson that why you matter isn't up to you to determine. And so we never ask the question of ourselves or other people and we do not articulate an answer. So I spared you there because you've already done the wonderful answers before, but I love asking people, why do you matter? Because most, 95% of the people I ask, and we're including really rich people and successful people, they can't give an answer. They've never been asked before. And if you really want to boil down what the day one process is, I'm trying to give people evidence that they matter. Evidence. Because right now we were talking about those voices in your brain that say you're no good. Why do we not have at least a lawyer in our brain that like represents the goodness in us? Because that like, is it just me or does the side that gets to tell us we suck just not get off the stage?
0: Yeah. Monkey mind, unfortunately. Right. And if if anyone's ever done any work on that, it's a whole other, you know, ball of wax too. But for some reason, that's our that's and and I think a lot of the pressure around us, like you said, kids too. you go to school and not only are we taught a certain thing, but let's face it, putting groups of the same age children together, they're very mean to each other and not really mean to each other, as we all know.
1: You've been on Twitter lately? Uh, I, no. don't think that, I don't think that ends with kids.
0: Well, maybe that's why I stay away from Twitter, because I'm still scarred, right, from public school.
1: But The people who get to be on TV act like idiots. Like When we really think about it, like we have to acknowledge that people learn from their examples. And uh, one thing I've been reflecting on is that when I was a kid, I'm sure adults behave badly. I'm sure they were tools to each other and they got drunk and they said dumb stuff and they were racist. And I just didn't see it. I was a kid. But now (laughs) kids and adults share the same social media channels. Now, you tell me who's a worse mean girl, Scary. like the girl that your daughter goes to high school with or Marjorie Taylor Greene. You know what I mean? Like, and they get to see how adults interact with each other. And when adults talk to each other, the way adults talk to each other now, of course, kids are going to be meaner. Now, look,
0: lead by example.
1: Yeah. Kids have always been tools. I was one when I was a kid. We don't understand how our actions uh, impact other people. Men and women develop differently. So men completely are oblivious to the emotional impact they're having on women when they're 15, 16, 17 and 18. You know, and only we find out when we're forty what jerks we were. But I. Isn't mean, it the,
0: crazy evolution, <laughs> the evolution of the brain?
1: And I mean, we're talking on all kinds of topics here. But I, I had a a brilliant woman tell me uh, because you know I was saying I'm realizing now so many things I did when I was younger were wrong, but but I had no idea that you know they were having this impact. And she said, I think what some people who get really upset about they call things woke, they call you know whatever it is, I think they don't understand that what I am saying is I'm not blaming you for the way you used to behave. I'm saying that if now that you understand how it impacts people, if you don't stop behaving that way, now you're a jerk. But the way I understand it is that the world has evolved and we can't keep looking back and saying, if we're going to work together to move forward and address some of the systemic behaviors that have made huge portions of our population alienated women, uh, people of color, women who are people of color, we have to understand that when people are pointing out things that have historically happened that hurt them, they're not blaming the people who now hold those positions. They're saying, we want you to understand this hurts. Now, please stop. And that I think is so crucial as leaders in this world is to let go of the idea that when we change things that benefited us, it's because we did something wrong. It's very hard. One of the toughest things in leadership is to rise to the top of a system that rewarded you and then look back and say, we need to change the system. Like, it's really hard to to change a system that benefits you. And I think that we as leaders have to start realizing that every debate we have about whether or not someone is to blame for the way the world is takes away from us actually doing anything to make it better. So who cares what led to this systemic inequality? Let's stop denying it exists. Nobody's saying it's your fault. We are saying it's your fault if you now know that it's there and don't do anything about it.
0: Yeah, now day I'm one. At you. Yeah. Day one, every day, right? And and if we looked at every system, and I'm going to say it, like our education system, our healthcare system, every system that's archaic because the people that have been profiting don't want to make a change We, as a society, have to treat it every day should be day one in all of those systems. How can we make it better as the world changes? We know the world changes. That is consistent. (laughs) The world changes.
1: Justice and decency. I think instead of rules, instead of this is the way it has to be, but I don't think we make enough decisions based on human decency. And justice gets people up because they think you're taking something away or you're blaming something. I'm like, okay, then let's not talk about social justice. Let's talk about decency to each other, left, right, whatever it might be. We have lost track of the absolutely essential human gift of dignity. And we treat each other as if we don't deserve dignity. And of course, when somebody, even if they disagree with me, if I treat them as if they deserve no dignity and that they, that they deserve no decency, They're of course they're going to hate me. You know what I mean? I think the Absolutely. best way, and I don't know how we got on this, I know, but I love this quote from someone said, it was a a conservative and a, a liberal talking to one another, and the conservative said, why don't we get along? And the liberal says, you don't like us because you think we think you're stupid, and we don't like you because we think you're stupid. And as long as we keep doing that, neither side is ever going to move because neither one of those things is true. All right? Nobody's stupid. But when you decide that they disagree with you so they don't deserve decency, that's where all these problems are coming from. The divisions are coming from the fact that some very small group of people profit from the divisions, but it feels good. I learned this with the ADHD. I hope this is still useful to anyone listening, but I was very, very unhappy for many years despite the fact I had a job that was really about making people feel better. The only time I ever felt as if I belonged in this world was when I was speaking because I could watch that it impacted people. And I, it was a reminder to me what I needed to do to get through it. But I realized it was because I couldn't focus on anything. And we live in a world that distracts us a lot. And I think everyone has a focus problem. But in my case, it was chronic, right? It was a serious issue. But everyone has a focus problem. But when you can't focus on something for a a significant amount of time, you can't appreciate it. And if you can't appreciate something, you can never be happy. Appreciation of the world and people is necessary for happiness. And what I discovered is that when I had the ability to focus long enough to appreciate, all happiness left. And so I think what we need to be able to do is find a way to recognize that anger focuses you. I realized I was so angry so often because the only time I ever had only one thought in my head was when I was mad. When I was mad, all the voices went away except for the one that was screaming. And I think we should all ask ourselves, how often are we actually upset? And how often are we, is our brain desperately trying to find just a little bit of quiet and focus? And it's so weird to think of hatred as causing quiet, It doesn't cause quiet, but what it does is cause laser focus, which shuts out a lot of those things that are distracting and more importantly, scary in this world. So when we're enraged, we're not as scared. The funny thing is that anger is not an emotion in and of itself. It is a byproduct of a collection of emotions and fear is almost always one of them. And I know that's not really what we started talking about here, but I think it's so crucial to recognize that We're always working with people that sometimes we struggle with, but now it's almost as if like when you start meeting people or working with people, you have to figure out what team they're on and that changes all of your social cues. And I think that we need to be really careful when we're doing that because everyone knows when they're instantly judged. And one of the things that I'm really working on as a leader is to stop trying to figure out what team people are on because it greatly oversimplifies people and the world we live in.
0: Absolutely. Everybody has so much to bring to the table. And we have to create a table that everybody can come and sit and bring their ideas and feel comfortable sharing them. And that's what I love about this. This podcast, um, I'm this is like my fourth episode I've ever done of a podcast. It wasn't something I thought maybe I would even enjoy doing, but getting to sit down because I love talking to people and that I love so I'm I'm a realtor by by trade and have transitioned into a leadership position, which I also love, love even more than I thought I would as well, because it's about helping people, which is what being a realtor is about. And I love I think because of the amount of time I get to spend with people talking to them and getting to hear who they are and, you know, what, what their why is and why they matter and their families and everything else like that. And now sitting down and doing this podcast is awesome because I get to do the same thing with people um, that I wouldn't have had the opportunity to connect with one on one. So I know I, I took us way off the, the course, but I absolutely had a great, uh, great chat. And I think we could probably go on and on and on. Because we are in such a a unique time. But I think, again, back to the gratefulness and uh, being appreciative. And so I always try to just focus on how grateful I am. I'll be honest, it's a a little bit of a, because maybe I have ADHD as well, but a little bit of a game I play with myself. Because when my mind starts to race, I start to focus on everything I'm grateful for, right down to like, I'm grateful that I woke up this morning, I'm grateful that I can breathe, I'm grateful I can walk, I'm grateful both my arms work. Like, I'm grateful I can see, I can smell, I can hear. Like, I go through that whole process and it will just, brings me right back to being present.
1: That's amazing. Because for anyone listening, what Sarah just described goes against every human nature imaginable. Because our attention will always be drawn to threats instead of things we should appreciate. Because threats can hurt you and things you can appreciate, well, we can take them for granted because they're not going to kill us. And so the ability, what you just described, to focus on gratitude actually takes an immense amount of conscious effort. Because as anyone listening will tell you, your brain will automatically shift to the things. And it's not stuff that stresses you out. It's stuff that your brain perceives as a threat. And so we'll always pay more attention to that. So everyone out there who just listened to what Sarah had to say and went, I wish I could do that. You can, but it's not going to happen naturally. And I think that's the big piece is it. So much of my work I've come to realize is dealing with the fact, as I said, that our brains are still designed and our basic nervous systems are still designed for a world that hasn't existed for thousands of years. Hunting, gathering, we're still designed for that. And now when somebody argues with us across a boardroom table, we have the same fight or flight reaction that we did when a a predator would jump out 6,000 years ago because the social world has changed a lot faster than we have. And the only reason I went on that rant, everybody is one decides to say to Sarah that what you're doing is amazing because I can't do that. And I've tried, although maybe now with some treatment, I, I, I with the ADHD, I can do it and it's like a game changer. But if you can't, please don't beat yourself up like the toxic positivity online where people are like, you walk into every room and ask what would love do cool. But that's not how most people process the world. And if you are not able to go into a room and say, what would love do here? Or if you're not able to simply say, I'm going to take a moment and appreciate, that's okay. Like, it's really okay. Somehow we were convinced that if we weren't happy all the time, it's a character flaw. And and I really just want to let everybody know, look, I do speeches and write books about how to get the absolute most out of your life and your interactions. And I still haven't figured it out. And all I can do is try a process that makes it happen more often than it doesn't.
0: Exactly. And that's that, you know, day one. And again, being consistent, but not too hard on yourself when you're not. Again, my biggest takeaway is going to be having a list and giving myself permission to only check off, you know, three of the six every day. I love that. It's for huge for me, because what happens is if I don't get everything off my list, then I have little panic attacks as well. So
1: for what it's worth, that came from when I lost a bunch of weight. And it's just a strategy called planning for failure because the person who helped me through it told me, I've got a series of questions you have to ask each day and answer each day to lose weight, but you don't have to answer them for 65 out of the next 365. So she gave me two months off and I could just spread those days out whenever I needed them. And it worked. It worked so well because now I didn't see deviating from the plan as a failure. I saw it as an execution of the plan because we planned for 65 days of failure. And now I also look at my life because, you know, the pandemic and and I lost, you know, members of my family. And so the weight comes back on. But now I'm like, well, I have 80 years of my life. I'm allowed 10 where I'm not at my absolute best. And that permission so that you no longer see yourself as failing, but you're executing on a plan for failure. Man, nobody's failing when they're executing. So that's where that came from, that like three out of six. It's just an acknowledgement that some days we suck.
0: And it's gamifying it. Somebody said to me to game of like, if you're if you're a gamer, you like to play games, um, which a lot of people do any type of game to gamify everything. Right. So I love that. So you've been traveling and delivering all over the world. And so what is one of your most memorable experiences from those travels?
1: I'll tell you the most memorable and, and, and an annotated version. I took a trip across Canada when I was burnt out badly in 2010, like in really bad shape. And I'd always wanted to take the train across the country. And in, I went from Vancouver to Montreal and I was going on to Halifax, but there's no train that goes all the way across Canada anymore. Oh. Uh, you have to switch trains in Halifax. There's no single train that does the Trans-Canada anymore. It's too bad. That was the end of an era. It was about 25 years ago.
0: Yeah, I, it's honestly been on my list with like the glass roof and everything. And- it's
1: amazing. But you have to take one train from Vancouver to Montreal, and then you take a new one from Montreal to to Halifax. So it's still amazing. But what happened was in Montreal, we all got on. And so everyone goes to the bar car because that's where you make friends for the Mm -hmm. rest of the trip. And these two men got on, these two extraordinary men. And they were the most lively, full of joy, vibrant humans. They bought everyone a drink. They made someone go get the guitar so they could do a sing along. And they were in their 90s. Oh, wow. Yeah, their names were Jimmy and Earl. And I remember they were so full of life that I wanted to talk to them and just sort of, man, when you're 90 some years old and you act like that, you got some cool philosophies. It's, you just know it, right? Because you don't give a care in your 90s. You just no. tell it like it is. Yeah. And so I sat down with them at breakfast and I remember they asked me, what do you do? And I told them I ran the leadership program at U of T and Earl, the younger one asked me, all right, what's one thing you want every student who graduates from your program? to know, you can only pick one thing guaranteed. And I said, I want them to realize that they've been educated into focusing on the wrong things. On the first day, I'll ask them, what's your GPA? How much money do you make in your part-time job? Who sings Party in the USA? And they'll nail them all, right? Money, Marks, and Miley. I ask them what the single happiest moment of their life is. And they say, they have no idea. And I'm like, how is that possible? And I want them to realize that they are looking at all the wrong things. And I lean back and I was so self-satisfied because I've told that story before. And people respond with a way to go, Drew. <laughs> and Jimmy leans forward and he goes, Jimmy and Earl with their names. He goes, uh, that's because it's a dumbass question. <laughs> and I'm not used to getting called out like that. Yeah. But what he told me next has always stuck with me. It's such an amazing experience. And it, it also has to do with answering your question about why it's hard for me. And He said, you're an educator and when you ask people to look at the happiest moment of their life, you only have one happiest moment. You only have one most beautiful sunset, one most delicious meal, one most dazzling kiss, right? You get one. But numbers two through 50 are pretty good. But the way our brain works is that when we have a good experience, what we do is we measure it against the best version of that we've ever had. And that means that it inherently will immediately be devalued. No matter how good it was, when you compare it to the best, it will be devalued. And he says, we do that for everything. And most people miss most of the great things in their lives because they're focusing on whether or not it was the greatest. Greatest is the enemy of great. You should teach them that. And I was blown away by that. It's why I can't say what my favorite restaurant or favorite city was. But here's where they blew me away. I said, what should I tell them then? All right, smart guy. What's the replacement for my theory? And he says, I want you to tell everyone to draw in their line a line and they just call it the great line. And all you do when you have that kiss or that bite of that food or that you see that sunset is you only ask, was that above the great line? And if it was, you throw it into an attic in your mind. And it just, the thing about a ranking is it's one through 50, but you walk up into an attic and everything's strewn everywhere. You can pick anything up and enjoy it for what it is. If you look at life like a poker game, if you get one chip for the best thing in every category, you're limited in how many chips you can have one per category. But if you take a chip for everything above the great line, food, sex, parties, travel, whatever, you can have an unlimited pile at the end of your life.
0: As many as you can
1: store. And he says, Drew, spend the rest of your life looking at the great line and not ranking your experiences. And of all the cool things and moments and and interactions in my life, those two men, because then they told me that they met, I asked him where he got that philosophy. And he told me, when you think you've had the happiest day of your life at the age of 16, you have to adopt that philosophy. Otherwise, it's all downhill from there, right? And I asked, you had your happiest day at the age of 16? And he said, we had, I thought it was my happiest day, but I made it to the end of the beach. And these two guys had met on the beaches of Normandy and been shot by the same German bullet and they had a matching scar in their arm from the same bullet they met that day and they've been friends for 60 years. They stormed the beaches of Normandy together and I got to have breakfast with them. And he told me, this is how you're supposed to look at gratitude in your life. And I'm sorry, but if you took the beach at Normandy, you can tell me all you want to about perspective on life and about how to be grateful. And that to me is something that will always stay with me. And I tell the story whenever someone asks me, what's your favorite? So when they're like, hey, what's your favorite and expect a 10 second answer, they get the whole story of Jimmy and Earl.
0: That is a privilege. And I love that that's your best experience is, again, that energy exchange from people.
1: It's above the great line. It's above
0: the great line. Well, before we go, I have three questions and that I ask every guest. So the first one is, What is something you do or use to ensure you're always striving to work productively?
1: A couple of things. On a very practical method, I use something called Motion, which is a time blocking software that allows you to identify all the pieces of projects and then it'll just feed it to you in a systematic way. And more importantly, I use something called the Leadership Test, which is a a series of six questions, each of which is tied to a leadership value that I try to answer those three every, every single day. And the reason I do it via questions is based on some behavioral psychology research that says the human brain will adapt your behavior to try to find an answer to a question. So if every day I have an expectation that I will answer the question, what have I done today to recognize someone else's leadership? Or what did I do today to move someone closer to a goal, someone else closer to a goal? Or what did I try today that might not work, but I tried it anyway? Those are impact, empowerment, and courage. Are the three values that those three questions are just associated with? Every day I have six, and I try to get three out of six because what I'm doing is I'm giving myself evidence that I matter. And it's impact, growth, courage, empowerment, class, and self respect. Those are mine. And every day to be productive, I wanna make sure that at the end of the day, I can say I answered three of them because we're not always in charge of what we get to do every day. No, nope. We're always in charge of but who we your
0: are. core values every day that guide you. And everyone should. And if they haven't, if you haven't sat down and decided what your core values are, then definitely recommended.
1: Then you should call Drew Dudley and he'll tell you how.
0: Yeah, he will. Because there's the next question is very similar, which is what is one habit that has transformed your life? Or do you have more than one?
1: Walking, believe it or not. Walking. When I started walking an hour a day and then it started to be two hours a day. And then on some days I'd go for a 15 kilometer walk now I have the privilege of that. My job will allow for that. But that little bit of physical exercise, when I stopped doing that, my life took a dramatic downturn in terms of my energy, my intelligence, and my willingness to get things done, my interest in doing anything. Walking changed everything for me. It's just an hour a day. Listen to your podcast, whatever you need to do. It's just a game changer. Get out, put the screen down, and walk.
0: And smile at people. And get them to smile back.
1: Never start a land war in Asia. (laughs) No. And never mess with a Sicilian when there's death on the line.
0: (laughs) If you could write a chapter in the Guide to Awesomeness, what would the title be?
1: Oh. oh, oh, oh. Hmm. If I could write a chapter in the Guide to Awesomeness, what would the chapter title be? This is such a good question, Sarah. Hmm. How about awesomeness, colon, the foundations and the building blocks? How about that? I
0: love it. Well, it's going to be a chapter.
1: No, the foundation and the the foundation and the bricks. Now, what's funny is my friend Neil Pasricha wrote a book called The Book of Awesome. And I, when you said, what, which, what chapter would you write? I'm like, I don't know. I'd have to check with Neil to make sure I'm not stepping on right? any of his toes. <laughs> but uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Neil Pasricha, but he is a great dude. Uh, Who wrote, literally wrote the book on awesome?
0: Yeah, I've seen it and uh, I'll have to put it on my list. And because awesomeness is one of our core, like basically our core values, right? And we find so many things awesome. And I found the podcast without a doubt with you today very awesome, Drew. So thank you so much.
1: Oh, thank you.
0: thank you for joining me for another awesome episode. Whether you're already on the road to awesomeness or just starting out, be sure to join us next time for a dose of motivation, education, and entertainment.